Have you found Psalm 95? All right. This is the word of Almighty God, Psalm 95. And I want you to listen even as I read, because there may be in this psalm a tone change. In fact, there may be two tone changes. Listen as we hear Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. As on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Pray with me. Father God, Teach us, convict us, grow us, and make us true worshipers. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. How many of you caught the uh, plot twists? How many of you like movies and TV shows with plot twists? Right? The story unfolds the way you would expect. And then out of the blue, something happens that changes the entire direction and the entire tone of the show. A good plot twist can make an ordinary story far more interesting. And in our passage for today, we've read a psalm, a song of worship, and there is at least one, maybe two plot twists. Doesn't go the way you expect it to go. You get joy. We get reverence, we get exaltation, but in the end we get stern rebuke for a people who are not quite as faithful as they would pretend. Why does the plot twist take place? It all has to do with worship, true worship. And what we see here has solid application for you and me in the here and now. So come along with me through the psalm, this worship service with a plot twist. And let's find five key points as we hear a call to true worship. Point number one, be joyful as you prepare to worship God. Be joyful as you prepare to worship God. Some of you may have a note in your Bible about me teaching that point to you in this spot before. How many of you have that? Anybody? It was a Sunday school class in 2015. And I was visiting you that day and was not your pastor. 
That's when that's from. Kind of fun, huh? Be joyful as you come to worship God. Verses 1 and 2, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. This psalm opens with a call to worship. And to get it right, you need to let yourself feel the emotion that's here. There's nothing quiet about what's going on. These opening verses are loud, boisterous, celebrative One gets the picture of a worship leader calling the people to gather for worship. Imagine yourself living in Old Testament times near Jerusalem. Maybe it's a feast day. You know a special celebration has been planned. It's a gathering to worship the God who rescued your nation, who continues to protect you from enemies. And you love, love being a part of the people of God. You're grateful for God's kindness. You're grateful for his provision. So then how do you feel when you finally hear the call? Oh, come! What you've been waiting for is about to take place. You, your friends, your neighbors, you hear the cry in the streets. The worship leader is summoning the throng to gather for the praise of the Almighty. The celebration is about to begin. And what's it call the people to do? The people are to sing, to make a joyful noise, to give thanks, to praise. Every part of that is joyful. Every part of it is exuberant. Every part of this is a loud celebration of God. There are shouts, there are songs, there are ringing cries, there's thankfulness, there's true celebration. Well, why would there be such thankfulness? Why such joy? We can begin with the simple fact that glorifying God is the reason you exist. When the people are called together for the worship of God, they're being called to do the thing for which God has shaped them. Nothing satisfies the soul of a human being more than when that human being fulfills his or her purpose. And your purpose and my purpose is to give glory to the God who made us. Psalm 84 verse 10 says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Psalm 63 verses 3 through 5 says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And the call in this psalm was to sing to Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, the only true God. The Lord is the rock of our salvation. He's strong, he's stable, he's immovable. He's a solid protection. And these people have entered into a relationship with God in which they have received his powerful protection. So long as Israel follows the commands of God, So long as they follow the commands of God, God, as their rock, will shelter them and will provide for their every need. And God has also made an unbreakable, unconditional promise to these people. He will bring the promised one into the world through that nation. The joyful cry at the beginning of this psalm is the call to worship. The people aren't even at the place of worship yet. They're on the way. 
the leader summons them and the people sing and shout and rejoice as they go. They see that the privilege of worshiping the God over all the universe is so great that they sing even as they travel to the place of worship. How different does that look to us? What do you and your family look like coming to worship? Let me guess. In your house, I'm picturing the bridges here, but in your house, I would bet that one of you, when the alarm goes off, every Sunday morning, shouts out a call to the rest of the family, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. And I'm sure that when that call is made, the rest of the family springs into action, singing praises as they get ready for breakfast, rejoicing as they get dressed, celebrating as they sweetly pile into the car. I'm sure there's no arguing, no grumpiness, certainly no rushing about. I am sure that all of us are patient. All of us are well ahead of schedule. All of us are eager to glorify our Lord. Is that what it looks like in your house? To a T, says Ben. We'll do a sermon on lying later, but for now, amen. Okay, okay, okay. Maybe that's not the most realistic picture of the average family. But let me ask you an important question as you do think about coming to worship. Do you come to worship with joy or is coming to worship more of a burden for you? Which do you think it should be? Joy. Yeah. Which do you want it to be? Joy. Which one honors the Lord? Let me challenge you. Get away from the burden side and move toward the joy side. How do you do it? One way is for you to remember what a privilege worship is. Listen to me. You and I do not deserve on our own to be allowed to come. We've rebelled against the infinitely holy God. And that infinitely perfect holy God invites us and allows us to come. We're coming before the throne of the king for an audience with God. That's what you're doing right now. Is you've placed yourself before the throne of the king. And I'm not him. But you've placed yourself under the word of the king. For an audience with God. He's the rock of your salvation. He's the one who protects us. The one who saved our very souls. We ought to be thrilled to come and meet with him. And if you say, oh, but Sundays are so hectic. Be honest with me. How many of you have that thought in the back of your rotten minds right now? Because I do. If you say to me, Sundays are so hectic, can I urge you to take steps 
to fix that problem right away? This is a fix that requires some willpower and some discipline. Do you guys believe there's such a thing as discipline in the Christian life? So you want to fix the chaos of Sunday morning, you've got to take practical steps to do it. You know you better than I know you, so you need to figure out what the you that's you needs to do. But try this. First, start seeing Sunday morning as sacred. Sacred. Sunday morning is for you and your family to meet together with the people of God, to meet with God. Don't let anything take priority over it. Now, I'm not trying to be a legalist here. I understand. Sometimes you get sick. Sometimes you've got to travel and it's out of your control. But what I'm saying, church, if gathering with the people of God is central to the Christian life, and it is, we should be putting forth effort to make this the central part of our week. Can you guys agree with that? Think about some other practical steps you might take, bless you, to overcome the feeling that Sunday mornings are chaotic and hectic in your house. Perhaps, again, I don't know you to know this, but maybe, just maybe, you need to go to bed earlier on Saturday night so that you're able to get out of bed on Sunday morning. Amen. Now, again, I know that not all of you are in control of your Saturday schedule, so I'm not poking at you. But if you are in control of your Saturday schedule and you choose to stay up till one in the morning, how are you giving God your best when you're here? Maybe you should go ahead on Saturday night and lay out your outfit. If you're the kind of person that spends a lot of time in the closet trying to figure out exactly what to wear, like Ben. I can't imagine the hours he spends early on a Sunday morning just picking that perfect lookout for you guys and shaping the beard. Put the things you need in a place you can find them. So that the craziness of getting out of the house does not turn a missing Bible into a source of conflict in the family. How many of you have had, you with children, how many of you have had the whole, where's my Bible, where'd you put it? Conversation. That's a dumb conversation. Don't have it on Sunday morning. Have it on Saturday night and figure it out. Believe me. Do you guys believe, do you guys believe that there is such a thing as angels and demons and the devil. Don't you know that there's a devil and his minions who would love nothing more than to make your Sunday morning as full of chaos and anger as he possibly can? Husbands and wives, how many of you would say that Sunday morning is the best time for you guys to have a fight? How many of you have done it? Yeah. The devil loves to make us fight on Sunday morning. You and I have got to take steps not to let him do so. But also take time to prepare your heart to come and worship. Get your mind focused on the glory of your God. 
Remember that it's an honor that God would let you sing his praises and hear his word. Rejoice as you come into God's presence. Let's go a little further now. And with the psalmist, let's talk about how great is the God we come to worship. Point number two, worship God as the great king. Worship God as the great king. Verses three, four, and five. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. I've said we ought to celebrate the privilege of coming to worship God. And general gratitude is a solid reason to rejoice that you get to worship God, but gratitude only takes you so far. In truth, you're going to find joy in worshiping God when you remember how great God is. The psalmist says God's a great God and a great king above all gods. That's a double dose of great right there. God is great. He's big. He's immeasurable. Psalm 145.3, his greatness is unfathomable. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Bible, is greater than all other gods that are embraced by all other peoples in the world. Why, Travis? Why can I say that the God of the Bible is greater than any other God that people embrace? Anybody want to guess? Because he's real. All other deities in the minds of all other people are false gods. They are pretend gods. There is only one true God, and he is the king over all. And this God, the one who created the universe with his word, he allows you to enter his presence. He allows you to get to know him. He's willing to be your king and let you be a faithful subject. He's willing to forgive you and let you have the joy of his presence. God allows us to sing his praises. He allows you to hear his word. This is a tremendous honor and it ought to lead you to worship the Lord and see worshiping the Lord as your number one priority. You know, one sad thing about our present society is that politicians have destroyed the respect that many of us used to have for high office. Years ago, even if you didn't vote for the president, even if you didn't like the president, you respected the office. How many of you remember growing up and being taught, even if you don't respect the man, respect the office? That was true for governors, for dignitaries from other countries too. Two times in my lifetime, my lifetime's not been that long. My hair's gray because my kids stress me out, not because I'm old. Two times in my lifetime, I've had the honor of sitting, or of listening to a sitting president give a speech. Like an actual president of these here United States of America. One of them was a president that I kind of liked. One, one wasn't. But you know what? In both instances, I believed it was a privilege. Now, can I ask you please to take modern politics out of the equation and take your current feelings for the current occupier of any house away? 
If the president of the United States offered you the chance to come to the White House and meet him, you would. And you would treat it like a special occasion. Don't you think? You would learn the etiquette that is proper for that meeting so you didn't feel like a dunce when you were there. Meeting a president would be something you would see as a highlight event, something worth commemorating. If you can imagine meeting the president in the White House or the governor in the mansion or a king in his palace would be special. Or if you can imagine that meeting a celebrity in Hollywood or a famous musician after a concert would be a treat. Or if you could imagine that getting the autograph of your favorite baseball, football, hockey player, whatever, if you think that would be special. How can you not tremble at the privilege of worshiping the God who made all things? The one we have gathered in this place to worship this morning is greater than all kings, all presidents, all powerful people of all generations. His worth is infinitely greater. His glory is infinitely higher. How great is this God, our king? Look at what he owns. In his hands are the depths of the earth, The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. What's included when we consider the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains, the sea, and the dry land? Everything's included. Wet or dry, high or low, everything belongs to God. Everything. Understand, that claim that would have stood out very sharply in the culture of the Old Testament. The Canaanites who lived around the people of Israel, they didn't understand it. The idol worshippers of the surrounding nations, they believed their gods were limited to particular geographical areas. They believed the god of one land might have no power in a neighboring land. Does that sound crazy to you? Do you remember what Jonah did when he didn't want to obey God? Not Jonah Brown. I don't know what Jonah Brown does when he doesn't want to obey. But the prophet, he thought he could run away. He was thinking like a pagan. Well, if God's up here, I'll go down there. The people of the Canaanites believed, oh, well, God might be strong on land, but then he won't be have power in the sea. Or some gods are powerful on the mountains, but they're not strong on the plains. To say that all things, all lands, everywhere and everything belongs to God is a massive claim. Such a God is infinitely greater than the imaginary deities of the nations. This God would be worthy of worship from all people in all places at all times without exception. God's a king. A true king. The king over all kings. No part of the universe is off limit to God. 
When we prepare to worship that God, we must understand we're approaching the great, glorious King. We should respect Him enough to give Him our all. We should love that He welcomes us into His presence enough to make worship central to our lives. Guys, what more important thing can you do than to get together with the people and bow to the King? Worship God as the great King. Third point, worship God with reverence. Worship God with reverence. Verse 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Here's a call to come before the Lord again. But this time, you notice the call is not to shout. The worship leader calls us to three things. Worship, bow down, kneel. The word for worship quite literally means to bow down with your face to the ground. And the picture in that word is a picture of you falling flat before someone. Bow down has to do with kneeling towards someone, like a subject might kneel before the king who's conquered him. The word here for kneel is a word often used for bless in the Old Testament. And all three of those words, all three of them, have to do with you physically putting yourself on a lower level before somebody who is your superior. We don't need to spend a lot of effort distinguishing those three words. Often, the Bible will put three similar words together to try to show you that the action is to be a big one, a complete one. Jesus called us to love God with what? Your heart, your soul, your mind. You're not supposed to be dividing those things. You're supposed to say, with everything I've got. In Psalm 145, in 1 and 2, David says, I'm going to extol God, bless God, and praise God. You think he was really breaking those apart? No, he said, I'm going to praise God all the way. Well, the overall point of bow, worship, kneel is this, reverent submission. Worship is about you and me taking actions and adopting heart postures that show that God is great and we are his servants. Daniel Block says of worship, I've read this to you many times, true worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will. Stephen Lawson writes this, Herein is the heart of worship. It is acknowledging the worship of God the true sovereign, God himself. It is declaring his greatness and bowing before his throne. True worship is approaching God, lowering oneself in his presence and adoring him as a subject would kneel before his king and kiss his extended hand. God alone is worthy of such worship. Lawson goes on to say, this great God should be worshipped in the appropriate manner. Bow down means to prostrate oneself, especially before a superior. Most specifically, 
bow down refers to an attitude of the heart, not necessarily a prostrated position. This word describes the total self-humiliation, submission, and adoration to be rendered by those who approach God. Just between you and me, when you hear the word worship, is that what you think of? to risk even something worse, just between you and me. Do you think that's what most churches out there think when they think the word worship anymore? The call of verse 6, the call of the whole psalm, is to come before God the King, to bow before Him, to show Him you have submitted to Him to give him honor, to pay him homage, to do it in response to who he is as he has revealed himself in his word, and to honor him in ways that God has deemed appropriate in Scripture, not just making things up as suit your fancy. That is worship. Notice that while the coming to worship was jubilant, loud, celebrative, The act of worship itself, the deepest act, is reverent. There's no chaos here. There's no self-promotion here. There's nobody in this moment who could say, Look at me! Listen to me how great I am! All is focused on God and God's honor. The worship is full of respect, full of awe. That's what true worship looks like, which is why we also say worship God with reverence. Fourth point. Worship God because of your relationship with him. Verse 7 begins... For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. In verses 3 to 5, we found reasons to worship God. We get more here. Before we worship God because of God's greatness, now it's very personal. The psalmist writes, He is our God. I want you to understand if your ears don't perk up in the Old Testament or the New, when you hear something like, He is our God, or I will be your God, understand that is covenant language. God said to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. So what we're saying here is that we worship God because we are in a covenant relationship with God. We worship God because we have willingly entered into relationship with God where God is the king and we're the subjects. We're also the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. What does that draw to mind for you? Shepherds and sheep. Does it make you think of Psalm 23 a little bit? Maybe John 10 where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. God is our good shepherd. He cares for us. He guides us to safety. He walks with us through danger. He lovingly keeps us 
forever. This is a tender image. This is sweet. God is a king. God's a good king. But he's not only hard. He's loving. He's gentle. He's kind too. This is a reason for you to bow before him and reverently give him honor. So, what have we seen so far, guys? We come to worship joyfully. We worship God as the great king. We worship with reverence. We worship because of relationship to God. And this is where many people stop this study. But there's still some psalm remaining. The big plot twist is coming. We're about to hear from God. And it makes us tremble. Point number five. Worship God with a soft, obedient, and grateful heart. Worship God with a soft, obedient, and grateful heart. Verse 7 ends with, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, There are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Suddenly the tone of the psalm changes. We go from celebration through reverence to solemn warning. We go from hearing the voice of the worship leader to hearing the voice of God himself. And the shouts and the songs of the early verses turn into trembling before the holy God who is over all. The last line of verse 7 has a terrifying word. Look at that last line. Do you know what the most scary word in verse 7 is? If. Today, if you hear his voice. This indicates to the Old Testament hearer of this psalm that they may or may not hear God's voice. They may or may not find themselves under his favor. They may or may not truly worship. And it depends on today, right now. Today, right now, are you listening? Are you bowing? Are you surrendering? Are you obeying? I want you to remember that God's covenant with the nation of Israel, the Israel, and when I say this here, I'm saying the Israel that is marked by being the physical descendants of Abraham, what some scholars call carnal Israel, the Israel of the flesh of Abraham. God's covenant with physical national Israel is a conditional relationship. Now, God will unconditionally keep his promise to preserve a remnant of Israel and to bring the Messiah into the world through that remnant. The people as a whole were under obligation as a nation. And if they as a nation obeyed God, they as a nation would have from God blessing, offspring, land, and dominion. But if they disobey God as a nation, as a nation, they will face God's judgment. This isn't about spiritual salvation. It was about survival as a nation. Leviticus 26 verses 3 and 4 read this. God says, if you walk in my statutes... 
and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. That passage is the beginning of a section of verses in which God promises blessing after blessing after blessing if the nation obeys. But then Leviticus 26, 14 to 17 says, But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. We also see if national Israel fails to obey, they're in deep, deep trouble. It's a conditional covenant. Their disobedience, by the way, will never stop God from bringing the Messiah into the world through them because that was unconditional. But as a nation, they can be in or out of God's favor. In verses 8 and 9, the voice of the psalmist becomes the voice of God. The Lord warns Israel not to harden their hearts like their forefathers did during the Exodus. Meribah and Massa are reminders of the quarrelsome, grumbling, disobedient nature of the people of God who came out of Egypt. Though they saw with their own eyes the mighty power of God, though they witnessed God's protection and provision, though they experienced miracles firsthand, they didn't trust God. They doubted, they complained, they disobeyed. They were hard-hearted, just like Pharaoh was hard-hearted. And the older generation faced the judgment of God. Though the Lord rescued the people from Egypt, he consigned the disobedient, unbelieving older generation to wander the wilderness for 40 years. Verses 10 and 11, speaking of the disobedient, God says he loathed them. They didn't know his ways. Their hearts went astray. They had errant hearts and they would not enter his rest. After the exodus, the people who refused to honor the Lord died in the wilderness. They never made it to the promised land. They never arrived in God's rest. For the Old Testament reader of Psalm 95, this final warning would have sobered them in a hurry. The Israelite would have realized He could not play games with God. No amount of bowing and singing is going to matter if it's not accompanied by a soft, obedient, believing heart. No words of praise matter if not reflected in a heart ready to follow the Lord. And even in the New Testament, the author of the letter to the Hebrews cautions believers right after he quotes this section of the psalm. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, right after this psalm is re-quoted, He says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
The warning in Psalm 95 reminds us all that we should check our hearts. It's easy for us to have hearts that grow cold, that go astray, that become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to encourage one another. We need to pray for one another. We need to grow together in Christ so that we can guard ourselves against empty, dishonoring, false worship that does not please the Lord. So certainly, Christian, as you consider true worship, ask God, God, please soften my heart. Please make me an obedient, faithful servant. But there's something more we need to remember. In case you're all discouraged and scared now. You and I are not part of physical national Israel. Our relationship with God is not, bla- is not based on our own goodness and our own obedience. If your relationship with God was based on your goodness, you would be lost forever. Because none of us has ever lived up to God's holy perfection. Even in ancient Israel, I told you that was about the political nation. No individual was made right with God by their goodness. Even then, all who were saved were saved by God's grace through faith. Here's the good news. Where Israel as a nation failed, Jesus succeeded where the nation could not obey God's law, Christ perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. Where Israel was a disobedient son, Christ is the flawless son of God. And where many in national Israel never entered God's rest, Jesus Christ has entered the rest of God, and he allows us to enter God's rest through him. You want to truly worship God? There's only one way. You must enter God's rest by you letting go of any thought that you will ever earn for yourself anything from God. You let go of any thought that you get to be your own master and you believe in Jesus and entrust your soul to his care and ask Jesus, oh Lord Jesus, please give me God's perfect rest because of your life and death and resurrection. If you're here this morning and you've never come to Jesus, I invite you to find God's rest today. Jesus promises he will welcome you into God's family. He promises he will forgive you of your sin. He is the only way for you to worship God and not be cut off from his reward. So what you do, friend, is come to Jesus today. Bow to Jesus today. Receive the grace of Jesus today. Surrender. Believe. Be saved. And if you know Jesus today, 
Thank Jesus for doing what you could never do. Thank him for being your eternal rest. And because Jesus is who he is, and because Jesus has done what he has done, stop acting like your goodness is what gets you in good with God. Stop so navel-gazing that you rely on yourself. But just believe, just rest, and because of who Jesus is, worship him. Worship him with joy. Worship him as your king. Worship him with reverence. Worship him because of your relationship with him. Worship with a soft, obedient, and above all, grateful heart. Let's pray. Lord God, we bow before you. We confess we've never been. We've never been perfectly obedient. I wish we had, but we can't. Or we don't. Even when we can obey, we don't obey to the degree we should. But God, my hope is not in me. My hope is not in myself. My hope is in Jesus Christ. He, the Lord, is the only one who can save our souls. He, the Lord, is the only one who can be our rest. And my hope is fully, our hope is fully in Jesus and Jesus alone. Because without him, we can do nothing. Jesus is good where Israel failed. Jesus is the son that Adam never was, that the nation never was, that David never was. Jesus is everything the Old Testament pointed toward but could never bring. We worship him. Help us to be a worshiping people, an obedient, faithful people. In Jesus' name, amen.